Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is the Colin McEnroe Show. You hear that music? What you're hearing is the audience at the Copper Beach Institute on the campus of Holy Family Passionist Retreat Center in West Hartford singing This Little Light of Mine, something we asked them to do at a show we recorded on spirituality and music on August 30th. on that night were Arudinara Lampalam, attorney and former singer-songwriter. He currently leads worship at the Riverfront Family Church in the Asylum Hill neighborhood of Hartford on Sundays. Noah Behrman, pianist, composer, educator, author, and activist based in Middletown. He is the founder and artistic director of the nonprofit Resident Motion, directs the Jazz Ensemble at Wesleyan University. Then David Shovin, a jazz musician, composer, bassist, and co-founder with Warren Bird of the Afro-Semitic Experience, founder of a klezmer orchestra, New Haven Capella, and Tina Cologne Williams, law clerk at the U.S. Courts for the District of Connecticut and worship pastor at Elm City Vineyard Church in New Haven. In just a minute, you'll hear our guests talk about religion and music and how they converge in their lives. We'll also hear some of their own great music. Actually, I'm going to begin by pretending I'm Krista Tippett, which is something I do in the privacy of my home usually, but um, <laughs> but I'm going to do it here instead. I'm going to just I just want to. She always asks what your faith background is, what your what your spiritual or religious tradition is. I mean, growing up, I think. So uh, I'll start with you. Go ahead, Tina. Just give us a sense. Like, what what kind of thing did you grow up with? Sure. Um, I would describe myself now probably most simply as a follower of Jesus, but growing up I went to church in various expressions of that. So growing up I went to a Pentecostal Spanish church, which for those of you who are not familiar can be quite enthusiastic (laughs) and very, very long. And then I ended up going to a multi-ethnic evangelical church in my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida, which is right in the middle of the Bible Belt, and then ended up settling at a vineyard church which is a movement of churches that's non-denominational. And is the music part of that pretty consistent from church to church? Were you hearing kind of the same music or were it radically different? You're, you're, Absolutely Your not. face tells me radically <laughs> different. <laughs> the Spanish church was a bilingual worship music. Uh, usually the lyrics are very simple, very repetitive. We would sing things over and over and over, and that was very much on purpose. Mm. And then when I switched churches to the bigger, it became what really is now a megachurch. And so the music was 
excellent, but also very varied. We had white Texan pastor and then an African-American worship pastor who sang gospel, but also sang contemporary Christian. And so it was just a mix of everything there. It's so weird because Noah has been to all of the same churches as you. It's like uncanny. He's at exactly the same background. No, not really, actually. What, so what, what, are, what are your spiritual underpinnings? They're pretty much entirely self-directed. I grew up in a completely non-religious environment to the point where it wasn't really discussed. So to me, hey, what's your religion is kind of like, what's your eye color? Or uh, when I was a kid, uh, mm. I remember asking a kid with a yarmulke, hey, what's your religion? And he pointed to the yarmulke, and I'm like, oh, okay, and went home and asked my parents what that meant. And uh, so for me, finding spirituality was almost entirely a self-directed thing. I've geared a lot towards Buddhism, particularly the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, the uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. But I've taken a lot from... Uh, black gospel music, both in terms of spiritual and musical nourishment. So essentially, I'm a, I've become a non-denominational, spiritual, secular, humanist zealot. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, how, how wrapped together is music and then what you just described for you? In other words, are you making music to express some of what you just talked about? Or does that kind of seep into the music you were going to make anyway? I guess I don't know where one starts and the other ends. Uh, I don't want to get too far out, but uh, I this guess is a copper beach we've already begun. Yeah, really that's far true. Out. To me, there's a certain essence of love and justice and truth and goodness and community and strength and perseverance and all of the things that are most meaningful to me in life and in music are things that evoke and touch on and wring some of the juice out of that essence. Okay, Arun, uh, your turn. So I grew up in an evangelical megachurch. It was pretty socially conservative, but there was a, a sense of God that I think was palpable. The music, you know, at, at megachurches, as Tina kind of touched on, is great because it's like loud and they can like afford good musicians. But my personal spiritual journey was a little kind of siloed, and so I I had this church experience, and I thought that there was some truth to that. But there's also always a sense of social justice that was important in our family and a sense of sort of basic fairness and equality. And, and that really didn't square with one segment of the teachings of the church. And, you know, there's this Gandhi quote that's, that's pretty popular that I really like that Gandhi at one point said to a pastor friend of his, I really like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. You're so, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think that that was at least half true in, in my experience. And so I I sort of given up on, on finding the marriage of, of those two things, which is where I think, in my opinion, God exists. And I, I went to college, I was in, really involved with the Christian fellowship there, and tried to bring sort of strands of the social justice teaching that I saw throughout the Bible into, into that setting with varied success. And found this one girl in our Christian fellowship who had a lot of the same views as me, We'd, we'd met once through the Christian Fellowship, and then uh, it was 2004, so it's election night, and we met at a Young Dems thing, and we were like, oh my gosh, you're a Democrat? Are you a Democrat? I'm a Democrat. It's, it's like this like secret, like it was, it was like the way my gay friends described, like going to a gay club and seeing their math teacher there. Um, <laughs> uh, and and uh, so, you know, we, we were friends, and we started dating, and 
It just so happened that her mom started this church that was an evangelical church that was socially progressive. And so I sort of by accident dated and then married into uh, the church that I'd been looking for. And now I'm the worship leader there. All right. Without extending this too much longer, though, I mean, at one point you were really planning to make music a career at one point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I dropped out of college to the great consternation of my parents. And did, but then you told to them you were going to become a musician, which I'm sure made them feel <laughs> yeah. a lot better. <laughs> yeah. And not just that, I was going to start a record label. Um, <laughs> so I uh, obviously didn't make it big as a musician. But it was, it was a really interesting period in my life. All right. Well, as soon as the show gets on the air, you'll be famous. So this is like your last little period. <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, so uh, David, you get to go last. Um, you already know the question. So, I was raised in a conservative Jewish household. For those of you who don't know what a conservative Jewish household is, um, it's not like a conservative right-wing Christian household, I don't think. But it does hold a lot of traditional values, very important, including keeping kosher, no music on the Sabbath, um, but a lot of music. So I was raised in a synagogue where not only was there a lot of singing, but kids were asked to do a lot of leading. So at a very young age, uh, maybe about 10, 11 years old, I was leading services uh, as, as a kid and, and knew the entire service by heart and could do that. Um, and so music was very important to me from a very young age and I wanted to explore music, but I was really more of a secular musician when I started out till I had a, a few encounters and probably one of the most was uh, important was when I was in college and I was studying about jazz with one of my professors, uh, Horace Clarence Boyer, who uh, died a few years ago up at UMass Amherst. And he said something that really hit me hard, which is all of the great African-American jazz musicians have a lot of church up in them. Dr. Boyer challenged me and said, do you have any synagogue up inside of you? And the answer didn't come out until a number of years later when I was playing at a jazz club with Warren Bird. And one night I'm in the middle of a solo and I realized that I was playing things that I had sung as a child, uh, melodies that I had sung and played as a, uh, sung as a child in synagogue. And I realized that if I wanted to find the synagogue in me, I had to become intentional. One night, I forget exactly when, um, Warren and I were talking about some albums that we both really loved, and uh, it turned out one of them was Charlie Hayden with Hank Jones playing spirituals, and that really led us later on to begin exploring Jewish and African American sacred music together. We're going to start having them put their music where their words are. Noah, I think you're going to be up first. Do you want to say anything about what you're going to do? So this is a shortened version of a movement from a concert-length suite that I composed and premiered a couple years ago with a large group of mine called the Noah Behrman Resonance Ensemble. The suite is called The Rock and the Redemption, and it's a reimagining, a kind of non-denominational, faith-based reimagining of the Greek myth of Sisyphus. Uh, so Sisyphus was cursed by the gods for his hubris and was sentenced to push a boulder up a mountain for the rest of eternity, and before it got to the top, it would roll back down again. And I reimagine this with Sisyphus as a hero and an inspiration, because if you try for something really ambitious and you try 
with complete sincerity and effort and you don't get all the way there, by getting most of the way there, you're still accomplishing more than if you had humbler ambitions and you become strong and you become persistent and you become able to handle adversity and all of this is kind of what I believe as a human being. So this is towards the end of the suite. Some of the uh, music in there, some of the vocal music is rearrangements of spirituals. So Latanya and I are going to do a couple verses of glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, So we need to talk just a little bit, otherwise somebody's going to have to follow that, uh, and that might be hard. So, you know, I, I don't know. As we were talking, I was noticing, Tina, you nodding about a lot of things that got said. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about as we got ready for this is that music comes into us through some other aperture in ourselves, right? That there's a way in which there's our brains, there's our emotions, and music somehow or other reaches us in a way that isn't exactly one or the other of those. I mean, maybe that is why we often talk about music with soul, right? Is there a way you could react to what I'm saying as if it were actually a coherent statement? <laughs> I think it's coherent. Yeah. I wouldn't think of music as coming from some third place. So mm. it's your brain and your soul and then music in some separate location. Part of what I love about music, and I think about this a lot in my role of leading music for a church, which is a weird role to have. Like you're, you have a bunch of people and you're telling them what to sing and you're guiding them through this experience. It's an emotional experience. A lot of people who listen to music, I mean, regardless of your spiritual tradition, you can, I, I, we've probably all had an experience where we sit down, we listen to music and we just cry and we don't know why. And David, do you feel as though these days you could, or, or maybe perhaps even do, 
do music that felt still feels totally secular. Like back in the old days, before you had a synagogue inside you, uh, you music was a, a a more secular thing. Is it ever a secular thing for you now, or do you feel as though you can't separate out the spirit? I think it doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing musically. There's a spiritual element to it. John Coltrane really, for me, was someone who opened that up in terms of understanding that whether you're playing my favorite things or Ohm, one of his great later works, it's all imbued with a spiritual power. And it's really up to you as the artist, as, as the performer, to bring that intent to bear on the music. It's, I don't want to overstate it, but you can't be worried about whether the audience, which is sometimes a bunch of drunk people at a bar, is having that same spiritual experience as I, the performer, and my fellow musicians are having, because I, I know we're having it and I know we're feeling it, and that may have to just be sufficient at that moment. And I wonder about that too, Arunan. On the one hand, and this sort of goes back to some of the stuff that Tina said too, there's times when you're singing in church or in whatever place of worship you're at, where it's supposed to be like that, where there's sort of almost the burden of this being a spiritual experience. But I think maybe some of our more spiritual experience comes to us in a less pressured environment, right? Sometimes you're just listening or singing or whatever. And I would assume anyway, for somebody like you, that might be one of the times that the more profound thing happens. It's, it's kind of tough, right? I, I don't always feel like very spiritual and plugged into God at the exact same hour of the week, every <laughs> single week, you know, in that, in that time frame when we meet as a church. Actually, one of the most profound experiences I had was with a really simple piece of music. Our daughter is uh, Congolese, she was adopted from the Congo, and, and without getting into the whole story, while she was there, the, the Congolese government had, had halted international adoption, so a bunch of these kids got stuck kind of in between, and they were orphans in a country with five million orphans due to war, and so some of the most disenfranchised and, and dis societally disempowered people and I flew there to the Congo, and I, I stayed in this hotel where a bunch of other American parents were who had adopt, tried, were trying to adopt these kids. And one night we were all having dinner, and this one girl who was seven years old, and uh, just demographically, a, a huge number of the people who do international adoptions from the U.S. at least are evangelical Christians. So everybody staying at this hotel was an evangelical Christian. And so this one little girl wanted to sing a song, and she, she stood up in front of everybody, and she sang this really simple children's song. It goes, I am not forgotten. I am not forgotten. I am not forgotten. God knows my name. That, that moment for me is, was, was maybe the most hopeful and, and faithful moment of my life. I mean, the, the, Colin uses this word refulgence. I mean, that was a moment of refulgence for me where you, you could see God reaching into the earth to a girl that society, society has stripped of power and isolated in the most psychologically damaging of ways, that was a moment of worship. Noah, I'm sure you got something really interesting to say. I, I, I will, say, to I will say that in my own yeah. practice, the folks on the radio can't see all the splints on all my fingers, but I was born with a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome that makes all of my joints uh, hypermobile, and uh, so, I'm already at 43, several years past when I thought I was going to have to quit playing. There is a degree to which 
both on a day-to-day -day basis and in the grander scheme that gives me a sense of urgency with music. I can only play so much before my body craps out and I, I don't know how much time I have left, hopefully a lot, we'll see. I feel, I feel crazy when I say this, but I'm trying to enlighten people and I'm trying to heal people and, uh, and there's certain approaches to music that lend themselves better or less well to pursuing that and I've pretty much decided to dive into the deep end of committing myself pretty exclusively to the stuff that at least has the potential of doing that. I am not able to accomplish that every time I play by mm. any means, but that's, that's the intention every time at this point. All right, I want you to keep meeting these people musically. Uh, let's see. Um, Tina, tell us what we're about to hear. Yes. Part of growing up in a religious household is that I think to become closer to God and become more spiritual, I have to unlearn some things. And so one of the things I've had to unlearn is this idea that one's spiritual journey should be neat and packaged and like tied up really pretty with a bow and you should, it's about finding answers. What I've come to discover, what I've come to believe is that approaching God and understanding spirituality is more about leaving room for tension and leaving room for mystery and not having any of the answers and actually being okay with that and being okay with being uh, confused and small and mixed up. And so this is a song that, one of the earliest songs that I wrote, one of the first things I wrote on guitar uh, that allowed room for questions where I was kind of just framing it as a conversation with God where I was like, so God, what the heck, <laughs> there's a lot that's messed up. A lot of my friends are sick or there's a lot that I see that really frustrates me and I don't understand how you're supposed to exist as a good God and these things are happening and so I'm just gonna throw it out there. And so it's called Oh Me. I've tried this once before I've tried to turn my back Tried to convince myself You can't be proven You're not real Logic tells me you don't care Reason tells me you're not there So why is it that I just can't stop praying? What is this hope you give Then maybe we might live Even when it seems your absence let us die Why is it I can't turn Even when my questions burn Even with my proof, my doubts I'll never leave you If only you've been here Lazarus would still be alive. What kind of mighty God lets himself and his people die? But deep inside I know you're right here in this song. You're listening to these words. You've been here all along. You're patient and you're kind. You're still strong and you're still wise. Your presence in a way sight can't describe. My mind can't comprehend, but my heart still understands. You let us die, but you also let us rise. Tina Colon Williams. So one of the lessons of tonight is that when you're dealing with 
a clerk to a federal judge or a public school teacher or a corporate attorney, you don't really know who you're dealing with, all right? They've got all kinds of other stuff going on. We're going to take a break right now, but we are live from the Copper Beach Institute with this great audience here. We're going to be right back. You're listening to a show about spirituality and music at the Copper Beach Institute in West Hartford. Joining us were Arunanara Lampalam, an attorney, a former singer-songwriter, a worship leader, uh, Noah Behrman, pianist, composer, educator, author, and activist, David Shevin, jazz musician, composer, and bassist, and Tina Colon-Williams, who's an attorney, a singer-songwriter, and a worship pastor in New Haven. Let's go back to the conversation we're having about spirituality and music. So before we say another word, before we talk in this segment, we're going to start you off with some music. You're about to hear from uh, David Shevin uh, with his partner and co-founder of the Afro-Semitic Experience, Warren Bird. Tell us what you just played. Uh, so I'm going to hand the microphone over to Warren because it's his composition and because I wanted you all not just to hear him play, but his voice at least for a millisecond to introduce the piece. Warren Bird. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all so kind. I see a lot of familiar faces out here. Thank you so much. I, I'll try to keep it brief. When I was a kid of about 16, 17, I thought it was a way possible to play the right notes and play the right songs and change the world. I'm no longer 16, but I always know that music does have an effect. And sometimes it's just 
so that you can counteract certain other energies. There was a war that had started sometime around 2003 or so, and so I wrote this piece, and it's called Plea for Peace, to sort of counteract the war energy that had sort of descended upon, at that moment, this country. Yeah. Actually, uh, the full title Warren left out is Plea for Peace, A Prayer, which is what it always is when we play a prayer. I do want to talk a little bit about that idea that music lends itself, and, and Noah, I, I was setting you up for that, uh, it kind of lends itself for explorations, interfaith, as David correctly says. Uh, there's a way in which music, I think it allows us maybe to get out of one particular cubbyhole and, and into a lot of other places. I mean, the, the music that I find the most spiritually illuminating and inspiring, three artists came to mind, John Coltrane, who David mentioned, Stevie Wonder, and the group Sweet Honey and the Rock. Mm -hmm. And very different if you look at, well, I, I, this is maybe obsolete, the record, the bins in the record stores, haha. -ha. But uh, <laughs> the, way, the way things are broadly categorized, they would be three separate categories but to me, they're all pursuing the same essence and they're all very liberally applying whatever is relevant from other genres outside of what they're doing. Coltrane's incorporating blues and gospel and Indian classical music and Stevie Wonder was such a polyglot musically, Sweet Honey, so diverse. And what is driving all of them is this um, quest for the transcendent and thinking in terms of genre labels is much more of a commercial issue than it is a spiritual one. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking not just about musical genres, but religious, so to speak, genres. Uh, I, maybe, Tina, this is a good question to ask you. I think almost anybody could listen to the song that you just, that you just played. Anybody rooted in any religious or spiritual tradition and relate to it, I would hope anyway. Yeah, no, I think so. I think... I don't think all music is necessarily universal. I mean, having mm. grown up in the church, there is a lot of songs that are just like, I'm telling you a story. It is a very particular story. Mm. But one thing that I really do appreciate about music is that it can make so much room for all sorts of kinds of stories in one space. Having grown up in the church, you do a lot of missions trips. One, one place that I've frequented a lot and spent some time in is northern Uganda, which is a place that has suffered a lot of war um, and a lot of hardship. And we would spend time with a group of women there, and I don't know the language, Acholi, at all. And they don't necessarily know English, but what we do is we sing. And I don't know what we're singing, but there's a connection there. Uh, we memorize the songs in each other's languages, and then year to year you go back and you see the same people, and there's this connection. Um, I think, Runin, it's time for you to, to do your thing here. Um, so this song is called Daylight. We have, we have this guy at our church, Rich Gruber, who's really great, and he said one time, you know, people think of miracles as the seas parting or, you know, people being risen from the dead, but it happens every day on, on this earth. And so he said that after I wrote the song, and maybe this might have been a much better lyrical song if I could have stolen some of his thoughts but this, this is sort of in the same vein. It's, it's about seeing God in what's around me, but also choosing God over the things that we've, we've sort of materially been conditioned to want. All that I'd once forgotten is reappears shiny 
but rotten. And all that left by the wayside comes back all dressed in lies. My world kept spinning faster and faster till you My beautiful, this beautiful disaster. I'm living on sunrise, running towards daylight. I'm living on sunrises. It's all I need. It's all I need. I want to talk, there's something that I've been trying to wrap my mind around. I've been trying to understand, David, what happened with music in the 20th century, popular music in the 20th century. Because really, if you go back much further than that and you say, oh, we're going to have a conversation about spirituality and music, well, for about 2,800 years of human history, people would have said, well, what, there's some other kind of music? Which isn't strictly true. There was always a folk tradition, body songs, songs about animals. There was, you know, I mean, there would, there would have been some other stuff. But by and large, the notion of music, spirituality, belief, faith, worship, so these, these are all kind of wrapped together for a really long time. And then it seemed as though in the 20th century, particularly in the American 20th century, there was kind of the Great American Songbook, Rodgers and Hammerstein, not particularly spiritual. There was the rock and roll rebellion. There was jazz. It, feel, it felt as though secular music became very intensely secular. Yeah, I don't hear it that way. Yeah? Yeah, because I, when I listen to a Gershwin song, it's mm -hmm. a very spiritual experience for me. Yeah. It's very clear. Our love is here to stay. <laughs> Forever we're going to go a long, long way. That's not spiritual. So I think it's really... Again, it's the ear of the bearer. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> you you you're going to hear what you're looking for to hear, and sometimes you'll have a spiritual experience when you're listening to a Gershwin song, or a, what's that song from South Pacific? Uh, you've got, got to, to be, be carefully taught. That's right. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of spiritual messages if we take a minute and and listen to our popular song in a different way. Or as again, my great teacher Horace Poyer pointed out. Uh, most pop songs, if you replaced baby with Jesus, you'd have a, you'd have a Christian song. <laughs> <laughs> so if we want to, we can find it. If we don't want to, it's not there. Right. Um, I, I just have to change the subject for a second, because Tina, I was so glad to hear you say that not all music is universal. Mm. Because I've had so many experiences in my life where people have told me that music was universal, and that I've just in some really bad ways discovered that that wasn't true. One of the very first Afro-Semitic experience gigs that we ever had was an outdoor festival not long after 9-11. And we were playing a klezmer tune, uh, a really great little tune that's actually kind of fun because it's 
It's all about, be quiet, everybody. The rabbi's trying to speak. And we're playing this great klezmer tune, and we're getting down, and we're jamming. And as soon as this, the, the, the song is over, somebody pulls me aside and says, you know, if you keep playing that Arab music, you're laughing, but it wasn't funny. If you keep playing this Arab music, we're going to have to ask you to stop playing. Don't you know how many people just died the other day? Mm. Now, there are a lot of things that I can take out of that, but one of them is I thought I was playing klezmer, and I thought I was playing Jewish music, and somebody else heard something else because they needed to hear that. But also, just the way music can touch people intentionally and unintentionally, uh, spiritually. Once we put it out, it's you, the listener, who decides whether you're having a spiritual experience or not, not me. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break here. Uh, we're live from the Copper Beach Institute with this great audience. Woo! Woo! We'll be right back. you're just tuning in, you're listening to a show about spirituality and music at the Copper Beach Institute in West Hartford. Arun and Aralampalam, attorney and former singer-songwriter, worship leader at Riverfront Family Church in Hartford, one of our panelists. The others are Noah Behrman, pianist, composer, educator, author, and activist. David Shevin, a jazz musician and composer and bassist. Tina Colon-Williams, attorney and singer-songwriter and worship pastor at Elm City Vineyard Church in New Haven. Let's get back to that conversation. And to get us started, here's Tina Colon-Williams. What are you going to play? I want to play a song called What I'm Looking For. It's a song that comes from actually a community of artists and musicians. One thing that spirituality can bring us is, is that it's not just a private experience, but can also be shared among community. Um, so I'm part of this group. You guys are all welcome to join. It's called Artist Circle. It's the first Monday of every month where different musicians and artists get together and they share things that they've made and then we use each other's pieces as prompts and then go off and make a new thing. And so this was written in the context of that structured group, but coming from an experience I had had earlier that day where I was working as a lawyer representing a young woman who was trying to get an immigration benefit for people who are victims of crime. Um, and she was in an abusive relationship and was reflecting on love and what it means and that longing for a love that's better than the version that we just see around us.
Tina Cologne-Williams, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so I want to return to this idea, though, that came up when David was talking about uh, after 9-11 and a bad experience. I feel as though after 9-11 also was a time when a lot of us turned to music. I, I remember hearing an, uh, an Irish band from Sligo called Dervish. They were on tour, and it was right after 9-11, and they had worked up this very traditional Celtic-sounding version of Paul Simon's American tune. And Arunin, I feel as though... One of the things that energizes us when we want social change, when we want, we want to confront something that's either upsetting to us or frightening to us. I mean, music plays this tremendous role, I think, in doing that. I, I think about 9-11, and then I, th I think about a time to sort of two years after 9-11, and I think there was, there, we, we had a brief moment in our nation in which we all came together, and, and even in a global community, I think we all came together. And you could feel that when you traveled abroad, that people from, from other nations, people from nations that had been through a lot more adversity, really felt one with our nation. And then we had a time of sort of pulling away, I think, as, as we went into the war in 2003. And music played a big part in my life during that time in being able to express in a unifying way some of the feelings of helplessness that I felt in that period. And, and also some of the feelings of, of subversion from this, you know, this overarching push to, to take our nation in a way that I thought was destructive uh, in a global sense. And, you know, music initially healed and then it, it expressed hurt. And it's amazing, I think, that art in general and music specifically can reach into so many different emotions and can travel with you through, through that paradigm of, of sort of uni unity and division. You know, David, I also wonder, I mean, I think music in some ways plays a role in teaching us. The music by the musicians we love can play a role in teaching us about spirituality, too. I mean, for example, when George Harrison became interested in Eastern music, and well, go ahead, you pick, pick up the story from there. Well, 
I was certainly one of those people who responded very, very, quite viscerally to the music of George Harrison. In fact, there was a minute where I started transcribing songs to put out an album called Songs by George uh, because, because his music really touched me. But that whole idea that is with the Beatles, where, where popular music could also have a spiritual element of, never forget listening to Tomorrow Never Knows by John Lennon is, a, is, a, is another example of that. I don't want to get too Beatles crazy, but, but there are so many examples of, of popular music artists who've explored their spiritual lives through their music. Bob Dylan, for example. We might want to throw, throw Leonard Cohen in there, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, his last album. Actually, that's an album I cried a lot to when I heard Leonard Cohen's last album. I was so hit by it at, at, at a very deep uh, level. The, especially that first piece where he uses all of these great Jewish images uh, that I'm very familiar with and, and, and in a gorgeous and, and very dark but satisfying way. I want to teach you all a word because it's a useful word that I learned, I didn't, I didn't know it initially, um, that the very, very religious use, uh, Jews use when they talk about how through singing they attain a oneness with God, and that word is devakis. And there are all of these songs that, that you can find that are devakis songs, that through the singing of them, if you do it with great intent and fervor and repetition, there is a oneness with God. Oh, I like that word. I yeah, like that I, idea, too. I do, too. Yeah. yeah so. so, Noah, do you feel like doing Lilac for us? I feel like I want another hour of like everybody playing, and it's killing me. So I'm going to do an instrumental version, I'll tell you the lyrics, but an instrumental version of my most recent composition. Um, in December, I don't want to bum you out at the end of the show, but in December of this past year, one of the singers, um, Latanya is one of the singers in my resonance ensemble, and one of the other singers was a friend and former student of mine, Claire Randall, who was 26, was murdered. And as I was saying a minute ago, it's in times like that that faith is put to the test and and one of the things that i try to go back to even before that and have been since is the buddhist notion of the impermanence of all things and claire was really fond of lilacs and uh, in the spring a tree was dedicated to her in the brooklyn botanic gardens a little bit after that experience of the dedication of this tree i was by the water by the ocean and the, the lyric came to me, uh, sweet scent of the flowers as summer is looming, how many more springs will I see lilacs blooming? Is the end far or near? I will savor without fear. Spring fades in the distance and closure that fall brings spurs us to reflect on the impermanence of all things. So this is lilacs.
Noah Behrman. One of my favorite things about this show was getting the audience to sing. We really had them roaring at the beginning with this little light of mine. Now we're going to say goodbye with the audience singing us out with Down by the Riverside. Thanks to everybody who made that live broadcast possible. Brandon Nappy, Executive Director of the Copper Beach Institute. Eric Melanson, Director of IT at Holy Family Passionist Retreat Center. Uh, our wonderful guests, Arunan Aralampalam, Noah Behrman, David Shevin, and Tina Colon-Williams. Of course, my gang. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, Katie Tularski, and the George Martin of WNPR engineering wizard, Gene Amatruda. <laughs>